Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 148. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we bless you tonight, and we say that we love you, and that we're delighted to be able to meet once again with one another as we study your words, as we bless one another, and we encourage one another, and strengthen one another during these difficult times. Lord, we pray that you'll continue to raise us up and give us a voice, give us clarity, give us a hope. Help us to know that you are protecting us, that you're providing for us, that you're leading us, and that you're guiding us, and that you've not forsaken us. Uh, Help us to be able to be bold and uh, to share our testimony with people around us. Um, There's so much nonsense in the world today, and people actually are looking for light. We've got the light. We've got the answers. We've got the truth. And we should not be ashamed to share that gospel truth with anyone who would ask. Thank you, Lord, for the students who've gathered with me tonight. I pray that you'll give them a supernatural ability to comprehend truth and to retain it. Help me to understand the topics that I've studied tonight. Help me to have clarity of thought. And um, just help me to continue to bless those who have been a blessing to me. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat in Thornton, Colorado. That's the Harvest Congregation. Like you can see on my screen right now, you can find us online at graftedin.com. You can meet us in person. We are meeting right now until otherwise, uh, any until said otherwise. Um, if you do find us online, make sure you uh, check out the recent sermons uh, that we've been uploading. Sorry about that. That we've been uploading, um, bringing order and blessing into local churches. I can see the, the Pastor Mark's been uh, working his way through these sermons that are uh, related to. Um, um, uh, local church gatherings and hey, what's what's on people's mind these days? If not the pandemic, besides the the pandemic, especially for Christians, um, what's going on with the local church? You know, can I meet? Can we be safe? How can we stay connected? Those are some of the things I think he's talking about. I've also got my own Torah teaching website at tatesaytorah.com. You can find me online at www.tetzetorah.com. Tatesaytorah.com. From the home page, you can click on any number of the resources that you can see clustered right there on the web page. I've also got my own YouTube channel. You can find me on YouTube's channel at 
youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H. Tetze Torah Ministries. All one word. And uh, from the homepage of the YouTube channel, you can get access to all of the, um, the YouTube videos that I upload. Click on the Videos tab to make sure that you can see them in the order that I upload them. You can see I'm quite busy uploading something every single day. That's why I say it, my channel is actually uploaded daily. Updated daily. If you go to my YouTube channel, make sure you do these few things for me. Subscribe to the channel so you can join the family. Hit the little bell for notifications so that you're in the loop and know when I'm uploading new content. Hit the thumbs up to show me that you like the content. That's your way of supporting me. Um, uh, just helping my channel uh, grow, helping my ministry grow and reach out to other people. Um, leave comments. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, what you're challenged by, what you'd like to see. Um, leave comments, you know, questions, uh, and I try to respond as, as, as often as I can. And then lastly, hit the little share button and share the content with your other social media networked people, your other people in your, in your YouTube crowd, YouTube family, and let's just share the share the resources together okay that would be great these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week every uh, Saturday late afternoon let me tell you some of the uh, details this is episode number 148 the meeting date if you're in the uh, United States is July 24th 2021 the USA date the meeting time, as I mentioned, every Saturday afternoon from 4 p.m. to approximately 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. So no matter where you're at in the world, just set your clock against the Central Standard Time and you'll be able to meet with us. The hour-long study is broken up into two 30-minute segments. Romans 14 Unplugged Feast and Fast and Food, oh my, is the first segment. We're in part 64 tonight and we're ready to jump into a brand new topic related to food and table fellowship, and clean and unclean, and those types of things. That'll be our, our uh, um, topic for the Romans 14 study. And then the second segment is given over to Exploring the Shema Discussions on the Issues of Trinity, Paper 2, Yahweh and Yeshua, Part 81. We're still in review mode, and we've been talking about um, Trinity and um, talking about these the, the issues that get kind of technical when it comes to Trinity. How can God be one, be yet three? Um, is it mysterious? And can we default to mystery? We've got a YouTube video that we're going to watch near the end of the study as well from my short questions, short answers live series, SQSA Live. And the topic is entitled, Did the Apostle Paul Preach the End of the Law? So if you're really interested in the topic of is the Torah of Moses still relevant for us today? Uh, be sure to stay to the end of the video and watch the little video. It's about like five minutes long uh, on this particular um, topic. Is the law done away with? Things like that. Here are some brief important details if you'd like to join us. Uh, every Friday, uh, Saturday afternoon at 4 p.m. Um, just get access to Skype. That's the easiest way to join our studies. If you can see on my screen right now at tatesatora.com, there's a blue Skype banner that you would find if you were to click on the live internet studies link. If you go to my website at tatesatora.com, at the very top, there's a yellow banner that runs the length of the webpage. Click that. It says live internet studies. Click that. You'll land on this page. Scroll down a bit halfway through the page, and you'll see the blue Skype link. And if you're on a desktop or a laptop computer, just click the link, and it'll connect you to the study when I'm conducting it live. Otherwise, 
you just have to wait for me to have live studies. So we'd love to have you join us week after week. That's where you can do it. And then one last thing real quick. If you do get a chance, scroll to the very bottom of the webpage of, of TateSayTor.com to that black area in the very bottom where you can see some Hebrew writing, and there's a little yellow donate button. If the Lord is blessing you to laying it on your heart to be a blessing to me financially, this is the way that you can help me out uh, during the difficult time that I'm in while I'm uh, still searching for employment. And um, you can donate um, securely and safely using uh, whatever uh, resource you have there. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right, let's jump into the Romans 14 Unplugged Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my. And today we're going to be talking about some of those uh, f- food topics, right? Remember the study is called Feasts and Fast and Food. Oh my. And so let me just bump up my uh, font there a bit. And we're in the section... Um, let me find it here because it always jumps up whenever I bump up the size of the font. It moves my page up or down, so I apologize. There we go. All right, so if you look on my screen right now, we've got a section which covers verses 2 to 4 entitled, What is the Contrast Between Anything and Vegetables? We actually covered this briefly months ago, and we're actually going to be looking at verses 14 through 18 tonight. But before we look at verses 14 through 18, we have to back up and look at verses 2 through 4 because they're connected. So I think what I'm going to do for you is um, read some of the passages in question. I'm going to skip around a bit, so just follow along with me on your screen. The question that I ask, what is the contrast between anything and vegetables, was covered months ago. Here are the verses that are related to that. Romans 14, uh, 2 through 4. I'm just going to read the English, and um, do I want to read the Greek? If I do read the Greek, then it will probably replace the liturgy. I think I will read the Greek. I'll read the English. You can see on my screen anyway. I've got English, and then I've got uh, Greek over on the right side. So I'll read the Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew. I'll read the uh, English first over on the left side where it says ESV, and then I'll jump back over and read the Greek, and that'll function as our liturgy uh, from the Greek anyway. And later on in the study, we'll only read, we'll only focus on Hebrew liturgy. The ESV of verse 2 says, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. So right away, we see that Paul has this topic of food on his mind when he's addressing the the, uh, believers there in Rome. In verse 3, Paul says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. We know of course right away from this verse that the topic that Paul is introducing has something not only to do with food but has to do with um, a special treatment of food. Either you're abstaining from either a type of food or you're abstaining from food altogether, i.e. you're fasting. And indeed that's why the study is called Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my! The study Romans 14, the chapter, actually does incorporate the concepts of fasting. And it's important for us as we um, draw some, uh, what do we say, some practical application. Uh, I don't think Paul's trying to explain to us, hey, we've got to fast exactly the way everyone else around us is fasting. But what he is admonishing us, indeed challenging us and scolding us as believers, is that if you decide to fast on your special day, then don't judge others in your community for not having that same fast day or 
preference for that particular special day. In fact, in verse 4, he goes on to say that, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. So if there's anything that we as Christians, as believers, as messianics, are supposed to glean from this passage, it's that when it comes to matters that are open for dispute... That's a key phrase. Matters that are open for dispute. Meaning, it's something that the Bible is not black and white on. Fast days fall into that category. What doesn't fall into that category is the kosher dietary list of Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14. That's not open for discussion. At least, as I understand Paul's perspective, he wasn't trying to teach the Gentile Christians in Rome that if you want to keep kosher, that's between you and the Lord. And if you don't want to keep kosher and you just want to eat whatever, that's between you and the Lord. I don't believe that that's the perspective he was taking. Instead, he is going to uh, have to deal with the issues of, are you going to fast on this day? Or are you not going to fast on this day? And when we get down into verses 14 through 18, we're going to see that he's going to have to deal with the issue of, are you going to eat meat that's sold in the marketplace as a Jew, as a Gentile? Or are you going to avoid that because you fear contamination from idols? Okay, those are issues that on some respects he's going to put his, put his foot down and lay down halakha, group policy. Um, uh, but on other cases, he's going to say, it's between you and God. You guys work that out on a, on a community level. Let's go back up real quick and just read the Greek from the SBLGNT version or on the um, right side of the page. Uh, the Greek of verse number two says, Has min pistue fagein pantaha de astenon lakana estie. Verse three right there says, Ha estion ton me estianta me exutheneto ha de me estion ton Estianta may crinetto hafeas gar autan praselabato. And verse 4 right there says, Su tis e ha crinon alatrion oikatain to idio curio steke e pipte stathesadai de dunate gar ho curias stesai autan. And that is the first time that Paul introduces this topic in Romans 14 about food and about judgment. And it's with that that I provided these uh, brief comments um, in my own commentary. I make notice of Tim Haig, popular Messianic Jewish author that I um, place a lot of um, trust in. I believe he's a very reliable Bible teacher by today's standards. Um, if you're a Messianic person, Someone who's inclined to uh, studying your Bible from the Hebraic perspective and you're seeking to um, expand your understanding of um, uh, topics related to Torah, Pauline theology, um, Law of Moses as it connects with you, the apostolic faith uh, in the New Testament, things like that. Tim Haig is bar none. Uh, T-I-M last name H-E-G-G, -G, Tim Haig. Um, do a Google search for him and find his website at, at uh, resource at uh, torresource.com and just dive in. Uh, you won't be the same, I promise you. In Romans 14.2, he makes these comments, right? One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. And so notice what Tim Haig says about this phrase, uh, eating all things or things like that. Um... It's no secret that the traditional Christian understanding of this passage is that Paul is actually explaining to the brothers that 
the, do, the kosher dietary list in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy has been uplifted. It's been relaxed in Jesus. It's been fulfilled by the Messiah, so you don't have to worry about it. So really, you can eat everything you want. The faith to eat all things, Tim Haig comments and says, by all things, Paul cannot mean that the Torah food laws have been abolished for the person with faith. Wait a second, is that where I want it? Yeah, sorry about that. Um, yeah, they cannot be abolished for the... Um, person with faith. Um, Why can't he mean that? Because Paul demonstrated uh, throughout his life that he was a Torah keeper, not a Torah breaker. And for Paul to thumb his nose at the dietary list would be a serious um, breach of keeping Torah. And I say serious because food is, even though it's not going to save you, right? It's not going to make or break your salvation experience with God if you, you know, have a ham sandwich. But it's serious enough that it would break um, it would break down the social settings that we are commanded to um, strengthen with one another. How can you gather together if you're not going to have some form of of um, order when it comes to table fellowship? If half the group is voting on ham sandwiches and the other half is saying, no, that's not kosher, um, you're not going to stay strong as a community for very long. If anything, you're either going to you're all better off just abandoning it, that view, kind of like the traditional Christian church today is able to uh, hold together cohesively the way they do by um, the general consensus that we don't have to keep kosher, or you're going to stay together in your messianic groups like we have today uh, because everyone kind of agrees to the idea that the law of Moses is still relevant, and thus we can still have our potlucks and our social gatherings and our own eggs and things like that. And it also explains why it's very difficult by today's standards to have messianics and church groups have get-togethers like park gatherings or um, uh, uh, picnics together um, because of the confusion and and uh-oh, he brought ham, uh-oh, he brought pork, or hey, didn't you know there's no puffy bread allowed during Passover, and what you know, what's with all the, the, the dinner rolls, or um, hey, he brought donuts for dessert to Passover, or something like that. And so uh, tensions flare, and you know, people's feelings get hurt, and uh, the pastor has to do damage control. You guys know what I'm talking about. So, in my understanding, Tim Haig is hitting the nail on the head. Paul can't mean that the Torah food laws have been abolished for the person with faith when he talks about all things. The Torah food laws are not a matter of opinion. So, remember Paul says in the very beginning of the chapter, um, welcome one another, but not to quarrel over each other's opinions. Well, the, the way that the Torah is laid down for us, it's not a matter of opinion. It's God's instruction to his people. That's the way that Israel interacted with the Torah. And that's the way we should interact with the Bible. We should be using the same standard for any part of the Bible. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about um, keeping kosher, keeping Sabbath, or keeping holy. If you are not going to um, treat the Bible at face value that God means what he says and says what he means, then you're going to run into trouble. If you think that, well, God said, don't covet my neighbor's wife, but in my opinion, well, okay, then you're introducing uh, confusion to the text. So we want to avoid those types of interpretations that leave the Bible's instructions open to opinion. But there are other matters that the Bible talks about, such as fasting and um, things like that, that, sure, they're open to opinion. So, um, Tim Hay continues by saying, um, 
the all things in this passage must therefore mean, quote, all foods allowed by the Torah without consideration for the many additional laws that are formulated by man. He goes on to talk about uh, he who is weak, right? In the passage, the weak person is the person who eats only vegetables. The weak person is the person who um, fasts on these certain days. The weak person is the person who uh, uh, is kind of scrupulous. And of course, he who is weak or he who is weak in faith. It is popularly taught that the weak in faith is the um, person who is keeping Torah but he believes in Jesus. He's a part of the brotherhood of believers, but because of his continued um, preference for keeping Torah, then um, that's going to translate into weakness on his side from the strong perspective. Um, but Tim Haig, like me, or I like Tim Haig and Mark Nanos and other uh, Bible commentators, and we're not the only two who think this way, Tim Hicks says that the one who's not yet fully accepted Yeshua as the promised Messiah in whom he believes continues to follow additional food laws. That's the weak person. Weak in faith means he has faith in God, he has loyalty to God's Torah, and he's interested in this dialogue of Jesus being the Messiah that he's been hoping for, but he's not yet convinced, he's not hostile to, hostile to the act, uh, he's not hostile to the notion, but he's not convinced yet. So his faith in Messiah is weak, Jesus as Messiah, but his strength in God is strong. Um, if we can understand that this is more of a first century phenomenon than it is today. Uh, something that would have been more uh, uh, possible in Paul's day, but not by today's standards. All right, so uh, Tim Hay continues to talk about how that um, uh, these weak people the the probably probably predominantly Jewish people who had not yet accepted belief in Messiah they probably uh, referred to or uh, the weakness was related to um, and the and the preferences the 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 additional food laws uh, were probably related to meat handled or prepared by Gentiles right this is common for Jewish people to avoid that type of lifestyle because of their um, suspicion of where the meat came from uh, is it tainted by idolatry uh, things like that. Also, um, uh, whether you're Jewish and being and a believer or Jewish and not a believer, uh, in Paul's day, the strictures against uh, meat handled by Gentiles was pretty widespread in Judaism. Uh, also, meat purchased from the common market, right? Can you eat what's sold in the marketplace? Now, Paul's going to say, um, generally speaking, it's okay. As long as it's on the kosher dietary list, yeah, you can eat from it. But don't flagrantly flaunt that and make a light of it uh, in, in light of the fact um, you know don't um, try to confuse those out there in the community that don't fully understand the freedoms that you uh, uh, that you uh, have come to when it comes to eating food that's sold in the marketplace particularly if it's on the kosher dietary list don't worry about it being tainted by gentiles or or idolatry but you also don't want to sit at a at a table where the host is telling you well this was offered to a to an idol you don't want to do that either so use wisdom um uh uh, regard with contempt in the passage, um, Tim Haig talks about that this probably refers to treating the person as though they had been rejected by the community. And that's really the judgment that he's trying to warn us against, to warn us away from. Uh, we are Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. 
even if you haven't believed in Yeshua yet, you're still part of the faith community that's being brought together by God. We've not segregated ourselves away from the Jewish communities, Paul would say to the Gentile Christians. Therefore, the Jews are part of the larger faith community that we recognize, the larger brotherhood that contains the smaller circle of brothers known as as, uh, believers or Christians. Remember, that smaller circle of brothers is still part of the larger brotherhood of Israelites, of Hebrews, of Jews who were part of the faith community that Paul was connected to. And so Paul's going to say, regard with the contempt to to create division in the community based upon man-made laws or halakha, man-made laws or um, group rules, group um, restrictions. Those That's what we mean by halakha. Thus, uh, to judge the one who eats as having sinned is the very thing that Paul's warning them away from. So using that as our setup, we can drop down past this section about the days of the week because we talked about that already. We know that he's probably not talking about Sabbath versus Sunday. He's instead talking about um, uh, fast days and versus non-fast days. Sorry about that. Um, and we can scroll down now and look at tonight's. And we're, we, we may finish this tonight. We may not. Don't worry if we don't finish it. We're just going to take a bite out of it, pun intended. In verses 14 through 18 of Romans chapter 14, Paul, I asked the question, what exactly does, quote, nothing is unclean in itself, in quote, imply? So let's look at the verses. We'll read the English and the, he- and the Greek once again, and we'll begin to pick this section of the commentary apart. And we'll probably only make it through verse one, uh, 14 for tonight as we um, dive into this. We'll keep working on this. I don't want to overload you, like try to getting, trying to get a drink of water out of a fire hydrant. Uh, you're going to get your face ripped off with the current. Um, I don't want to give you too much at one time. So um, let's first read the passage in question. Romans 14, starting at verse 14, we'll read down through verse 18, we'll read the ESV on the left, and then I'll jump over to the right side of the page and read the, uh, the SBLGNT Greek, and then we'll go back and start looking at uh, the, uh, the notes. Paul says in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. And right away, from the face value, on the face of it, this passage has been misunderstood by um, many in Christian circles uh, to the uh, confusion of the Messianics or to the disdain of the Messianics to mean that the dietary laws have been relaxed and the um, strictures of the Leviticus about keeping clean and things like that, particularly related to food. We know it's related to food because in verse 20, Paul specifically says that it's food. Do not for the sake of food, you know, don't tear down your brother, to, uh, for destroy your brother for the sake of food. So we know it's food related, not generically speaking, clean and unclean. It is still within the context of food. But is that what Paul really means? Verse 15, he says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, again, we know the context now of clean and unclean is food related. If your brother is, is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. There, there. I said verse 20, but verse 15 is it. Uh, later in verse 20, he is going to talk again about food. The whole, really, the context, let me just tell you right up front. Give you the bottom line up front, right? The bluff, the B-L-U-F. The bottom line up front is that this is a passage about table fellowship and about staying together as groups. Staying together as not just brothers in Messiah, 
but staying together in the within the larger brotherhood of Judaism and the brotherhood of of um, the faith community that Paul uh, was still connected to. Indeed, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, well, if the brother is your unbelieving Jewish brother who's um, joined to your group, who's uh, loyal to God, loyal to Torah, faithful to God, um, has a trust and belief in God's word, and is seeking after the Messiah of the scriptures, he doesn't yet know that it's Jesus, well, then what better place for him to be but within your Messianic group? Are you going to wound him and grieve him and tell him, nope, you're not part of the group unless you believe in Jesus? And, oh, hey, by the way, if you do want to be part of our group, you have to give up your kosher scruples and your old your restrictions about eating what's sold in the marketplace and just dive right into that ham sandwich. Well, that's going to grieve your brother as well. And Paul's going to tell you, tell the Christians, uh, those who um, come from a background that was not connected to Judaism, if that's the way you're going to walk, then you're not walking in love. You're destroying the one for whom Christ died. All right. In verse 16, Paul says, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. The good fact that you have been grafted into Israel. The good fact that you have been joined to the family of Abraham by your faith in Messiah. The good fact that you've been brought near to the commonwealth of Israel, like Paul talks about in Ephesians chapters 2 and 3 and, and following, right? The good news for you Gentiles is that God in mercy reached out to you who were not a people and called you his people, Romans chapter 9 and the book of Hosea. Paul says to the Gentiles over and over again that it's good news that you have been brought near, that you have been rescued from your position of a wild olive tree. You've been um, connected to the family of God and the family of Abraham by faith in Messiah. That's a good thing. Don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil now. Your place in the Abrahamic family your place to be able to enjoy um, meeting together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. All right, that's a good thing, but don't let it be spoken of as a bad thing. Verse 17, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Yes, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what you eat. It's not going to keep you out of heaven. God's not going to um, uh, boot your place in heaven. You know, He's not going to scratch your name off the roll just because you bit down into a, a lobster bisque. A uh, lobster sandwich, a lobster um, uh, uh, souffle, lobster, uh, uh, you know, uh, fine dinner. Um, you know, you had uh, shrimp in your um, in your gumbo. Uh, he's not going to kick you out of heaven. You know, ham and cheese is not going to keep you out of heaven. Pepperoni pizza is not going to keep you out of heaven. However, however, while we're still on earth awaiting our um, arrival in heaven, our uh, our place in heaven with with the rest of God's people, while we're here on earth. Eating and drinking, i.e. table fellowship, matters. Food matters. It does matter to God, and it should matter to us. Um, because that's how we build fellowship and strengthen one another. But in the end, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So don't get this out of priority. Keep your priorities straight, right? Don't go to blows. And then lastly, in verse um, 18, as far as uh, the verses, uh, Paul says, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Notice that Paul links serving one another with serving Messiah. That's the Christian model. That's the biblical model. That's the way it's supposed to be. What we aren't supposed to do is put our own preferences first 
and make sure that it's our way or the highway, right? My way or the highway. That's not the way community is formed and strengthened. That's not the way that we're going to grow together. We need to um, practice deference. We need to um, yield to the other, to the weak, right? The whole thrust of chapter 14 and chapter 15 is the strong bearing with the weaknesses of the weak. He even tells us so in the first few verses of chapter 15, right? We need to bear the weaknesses of the weak. We need to come alongside them because they are in a position where they're not fully strengthened in the faith in God slash faith in Messiah, particularly using the, the hypothesis that I'm running with. If the weak in faith are those unbelieving Jews who are still in decision mode when it comes to who Jesus is, well, all the more so you don't want to put them in a position where they're turned off to the gospel just because of food? Come on! Isn't the kingdom of heaven more important than just food? Yeah, I think Paul said so just a moment ago in verse 17. So, in order to serve the weak person, we demonstrate that we're serving Messiah by serving one another. And so the strong who understand who Yeshua is and affirm who Jesus is, we need to serve the weak. And in so doing, Paul says that we're serving Christ. And then in this way, we become acceptable to God and approved by men. Let's go back up and read the Greek of the same uh, section, starting over there on the right side of the page in verse 14. Paul says in the Greek, Oida kai tepesmai in kurio yesu hati uden koinon de hautu e meto lagidzamino ti koinon enai ekino koinon. Verse 15 says, E garadia broma ha adelfasu lupetai Uketi kata agapain, pepepates, perapates me to bromati su e canon, apalue huper, huper hu Christas apethanen. Verse 16 says, me blas fe mesto su, I'm sorry, un humonto agathon. Verse 17 right there says, Ugar esten he basilea tu theu. Brosis kyposis, right? Food and drink, eating and drinking. Brosis kyposis, Allah, but dikaiosunen righteousness kai and a reinen kai kara in pneumati hagyu. Uh, righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit which is holy. And then um, uh, verse 18, ha gar in tuto du luon to Christo. Um, in arrestas to theo kai dakimas tois anthropois, and that'll do it for reading of the Greek from that. Now, let's jump into this. We're not going to get through all of this tonight. We're just going to, like I said, just uh, take a bit of this um, and read through some of it, and then uh, next week we'll get very, very, very technical. So, let me tell you what's going on. Here's what I have to say in my own commentary a knowledge of the social setting, as well as the original Greek words, will unlock the secrets to a proper understanding of this particular passage in Romans 14. So, I say right away, in my experience, it's great to read through the English translations that we have. They are trustable, they are reliable. However, to appreciate what Paul wrote and to really get into the mind of his readership, we have to sometimes go back to the original languages and realize that some of the terms are a bit more 
technical than we sometimes give them credit for. So, um, let's look at this. Firstly, the Greek word akathartos is not found in this passage at all. Now, why do you care? Here's why you should care. We'll find out this next week. In the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, and really heavily within the book of Leviticus, God over and over describes this concept of unclean, which can sometimes be um, uh, related to food. Sometimes it's related to uh, a dead body. Sometimes it's related to the menstrual cycle of a woman. So unclean is just a, it's a technical term that applies in different contexts. But when it comes to food, it refers to that which God has um, deemed off limits to covenant members. Unclean, and when it comes to food, is a de designation of animals that are forbidden, restricted from eating. God calls them a kathartos. They're unclean. So when we look at the Bible in Leviticus, within the context of, say, the, the dietary list of Leviticus chapter 11, which we will look at next week, unclean is the, term, that's the terminology that's familiar in the Hebrew to Paul. When we take this term unclean and turn it into a Greek counterpart like Paul wrote to wrote in, then we have to begin to realize that Paul had the word at his disposal, but he didn't use it here in Romans chapter 14. Remember, akathertos, I say in my commentary, conveys that which is declared by God as unclean. This is a very careful distinction that I believe helps us to appreciate the force of what Paul's saying. To a religious Jew such as Paul, when God designates something as unclean, it's pretty black and white, and it's not open to negotiation. It's not open to discussion. It's not a, quote, matter of opinion like we talked about earlier. However, by comparison, when mankind declares something unclean, unfit for consumption, well, that's a different matter altogether. That's open to opinion. That's open to discussion. That's open to relaxing the rules from one community to the next because we have differences of opinion when we're talking about unclean from a man's perspective. I say in my commentary, Shaul is not, Paul that is, discussing the issues of pork versus lamb, meaning this is not a discussion of what God thinks is unclean in Romans 14. It's a discussion of what man has deemed as acceptable for eating or not, not acceptable to eat. And we're going to see this played out in the context as we look at this. Next week we'll get into this. So the word that Shaul opts for in Romans 14 when confessing that, quote, nothing is unclean in itself, unquote. Remember, we read the Greek earlier. It said, Udin koinon di chautu. Udin koinon. If you're looking at my commentary, the word koinon is underlined. So what is the word that he uses for unclean? Well, you heard it. You guessed it. It's koinos, or koinos is the root word. Koinon is the um, is the uh, the, um, uh, the, uh, the you know the, just the uh, the form of the word, um, the inflected form. Uh, koinon right there. Oops, sorry about that. So koinon is the Greek word, and koinos is the root word of the Greek word. Well, you don't have to know a lot of Greek, but you can hear it that koinos and akathartos are not the same word. Well. Why? Why do we care? 
Is there some big big significance? We'll learn next week that they are two different words, and they convey... There's a little bit of overlap. There's a little bit of synonym qualities uh, between them. But generally speaking, in a technical discussion, especially with a religious Jew like Paul, then the term akathertos when applied to food and the term koinos when applied to food are going to convey two different things. Indeed, we're going to find out next week that Peter, in his vision in Acts chapter 10 and his dialogue with um, God, he uses both of these terms, which means he understood them to be um, slightly related, but having the ability to convey different things. So, what I say in my commentary is that Shaul, Paul that is, is discussing matters of biblically defined food being, de- um, being declared by one man as okay to consume versus another man declaring it not okay to consume. Notice, we have something that is allowable on the biblical food list, right? And as long as it is um, um, purchased from a reliable source such as maybe a kosher butcher or a kosher uh, supermarket in Paul's day or something like that, then your average religious Jew is going to have no problem consuming that food product. It's on the biblical list, that's most important, the dietary list, and it was obtained from a reliable kosher source. That's second. However, if that same biblically permissible food item were to be located, relocated to a questionable source, such as a pagan food market, a pagan temple, which we know from first century uh, history, from um, archaeological records, that many of the pagan temples of the first century, they played double duty. The front part of the temple was where all of the um, pagan ceremonies and worship and prostitution and such took place. The pagan um, uh, pageantry and all that was right up front. And then the back side, the alley side of the um, pagan temple, doubled as the meat market the place where you could buy the food. So they slaughtered the animals in ritual um, uh, services to their false gods in the front part, in the temple part. And then uh, since they had quite a bit of uh, food that was being slaughtered, uh, quite a bit, a few of animals, um, then they would just process it and push it to the back of the temple uh, into the alley side where the... Um, uh, where the uh, the market side was, and they would turn around and make a turn a profit on those animals that they sacrificed, selling them to uh, various people groups. So, what would happen if it was biblically permissible food that was being sacrificed to an idol? Well, you don't want to participate in idolatry, right? Paul's definitely going to tell you to steer clear of that if you're a Christian and if you're a Messianic Jew. You want to steer clear of idolatry no matter what. So that's not even open for discussion. But what if that? Biblically permissible food, such as, say, lamb or uh, beef or, you know, something like that, or chicken. What if that were um, uh, slaughtered and offered up to idols? Okay, you're not participating in the idolatry, but, but, wait a minute, watch this. What if that same biblically permissible food was uh, processed and pushed back through, channeled through the backside of the pagan temple to the market side, and you just happen to be shopping for food that day, are you going to purchase that food? Okay, that's where the issue becomes, it's 
is it okay to consume this or is it not okay to consume this, right? Is it God's declaration that it's okay or is it man's declaration that it's not okay? Is it a kathartos or is it koinos? That's where we're going to get some mileage out of this food-related discussion. And Paul realizes that when we're talking about, and I'm closing with this, Paul realizes that when we're talking about um, traditional Judaism, most likely there's going to be avoidance of not just the pagan temple on the front side, definitely, but there's going to be an avoidance of the Gentile market on the backside as well. So because even though it's biblically permissible food, we're going to say no as Jews because the source is questionable. The idols have tainted the food and the Gentiles have handled it and thus it's off limits. No, 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 we're not going to eat it. However, the Gentile Christians may have not have been raised with those same types of preferences. Coming into this new movement as Christians, as Gentile Christians, um, shopping at the pagan temple or slash marketplace was just normal for them. I mean, it was a great source of cheap food. So what's the big deal? You know, it's chicken and God says we can eat chicken. So who cares if it was offered to food, offered to idols beforehand? I'm not taking place in the, in the, uh, I'm not participating in the idols, idol, uh, worship. And Paul tells me that idols are nothing, right? So food offered to idols, no big deal. My conscience isn't, uh, wounded if I eat it. So I'm just going to, uh, buy it. So we're going to have some discussion there. And so we'll pick this up next week um, where, let me just tell you in advance where we're going to go. We're going to look at Acts chapter 10, uh, specifically verse 14, where Peter tells God, I've never eaten anything common or unclean, koinon kai akatharton. Uh, he uses both Greek words, as we can see uh, right here, koinon and akatharton, which is rooted in akathertos. So Paul or Peter knew the difference between these two words. We'll look at that next week. We'll also turn to the book of Leviticus, specifically chapter 11, and see the root Hebrew words between this phrase unclean and clean. So we're having this discussion on clean and unclean. Um, what is the rooted Hebrew words? We'll look at that. We'll look at the corresponding Greek. You can see I've got English pulled up here, Hebrew pulled up here, and then down here, I've got uh, LXX, which is the uh, Septuagint Greek. And we'll look at that. These are two versions of the Greek, the um, Alexandrian version, Alexandrian and the uh, Vaticanus, I think, uh, over on the right side. Um, uh, so Alexandrius and Vaticanus or something like that. Those are the two Greek sources. We'll look at that next week as well. We'll also look more carefully at some of the Greek terms, uh, akathertos. We'll see what its meanings are according to some dictionaries. Um, uh, we'll see this here in some of the tools that I'm using. Uh, we'll also look at a lexicon and see how often this word shows up in the Bible um, for our study. We'll then look at koinos itself, um, the related uh, adjective word or noun, depending on how you're using it, um, predicate, uh, as its relation to uh, akathertos. Uh, we'll look at the Strong's Concordance dictionary definitions. We'll look at the um, uh, lexicon and find out how often this word is used. Um, we'll go back over to um, uh, see some dictionary definitions as well as well again and then we'll also turn back to the book of acts and see how that god's response to peter in acts chapter 10 about these two words and about food god says specifically that which i have cleansed don't call and then he uses a word god says don't consider this and he uses a term and in english he says 
common or unclean. But in the Greek, it's either akathertos or koinos, and we're going to see why it bears relevance for our studies in Romans 14. And then, we'll, again, we'll use dictionary different of, of uh, katharos, which is the word for clean in the, the Bible, katharos in the Greek. Uh, clean versus unclean, katharos, right? Akathertos versus katharos, or koinos versus katharos. Those are clean versus unclean, unclean versus clean, respectively, things like that. So that's basically where we're going to go in the study. I hope it's going to be beneficial to you. I'll try not to get overly technical in my discussions next week, but you do want to join me next week because we're going to dive into um, these food-related issues of Romans 14, and that'll do it for Romans 14, the unplugged feast and fast and food. Oh my. Let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. We left off last week. I hate having to do this all the time. I need to find a better way to make the pages stay where I want them when I resize the font. We're basically in exploring the Shema paper 2, Yahweh and Yeshua. And we're in the section, Is Yeshua God and Appealed to... Sorry, an appeal to mystery, an appeal to mystery. So let's drop back down where we left off last week and pick this up. We're talking about, uh, let me see, let me find it. Sorry about that. We're talking with Dr. Anderson. We're not really talking with him. We're just discussing his notes. Uh, let's see, where is it? Where is it? Got to be an easier way to do this, Ariel. You're a technical guy. You should be able to figure this out. I will one of these days be able to figure this out and make it a little better. Here we go. Is Yeshua God an appeal to mystery? And we're working through the notes of Dr. Uh, James Anderson, uh, who is a Christian. He's a Trinitarian. And he introduced this um, acronym known as MACRU, M-A-C-R-U-E. And in case you missed last week's study, episode number 147, which is available on my website and available on my YouTube channel, the gist of what we're talking about is this idea that when we talk about Trinity... When we're talking about the biblical terminology, often we want to um, we want to uh, say, well, the Bible is incoherent. It's logically um, it's logical nonsense because God is just one. There's only one God. Therefore, since the word Trinity isn't even found in the Bible, how can po- God possibly be three? And so. Um, For New Testament Christians to say that God is three is a contradiction to the Old Testament Christians who say that God is one. Notice the apparent contradiction between saying that God is one, God is three. One of us is right and one of us is wrong. So, what Dr. Anderson proposes in his acronym M-A-C-R-U-E is that Many times in the Bible, we're not, we're not talking about a real contradiction when we talk about the language of the Bible. What we're talking about is, what he says is, merely an apparent contradiction that results from unarticulated equivocation. What does that fancy phrase mean? He's trying to say that the Bible doesn't really contradict itself. There aren't any contradictions in the Bible. Instead, because of our limited understanding... Because of our information limitation in certain passages, because we're infallible, because we can't quite fully comprehend the miraculous God that we serve, then we are left with apparent contradictions because we don't fully understand what's, what we're reading sometimes. Um, we have a, a context that's taken away from us because we don't have enough detail in the text sometimes. We want more, and the Bible gives us a little bit. So it's a merely an apparent contradiction, and it's a result of the 
unarticulated equivocation. The word equivocation, remember, as let me bring up the, uh, the definition for you. The dictionary def definition of equivocation is essentially the use of ambiguous language to conceal the truth or to avoid committing oneself. So, um, uh, like for instance, let me just go like this and bring up the dictionary definition here. Uh, equivocation, it's, it's um, ambiguous language, vagueness, qualification, ambiguity, uncertainty, ambivalence, indecision, doubt, beating around the bush, evasion, dodging, hedging, fudging, doublespeak, fencing, parrying, uh, vacillation. Uh, so you, you kind of get the idea from looking at my, um, my dictionary definition. Am I saying that the Bible is trying to purposely confuse us? No, I'm not. Am I saying that the Bible contains highly technical terms from place to place that without the benefit of context can simply be equated as equivocation? Yes, I am. That's the challenge. The Bible sometimes uses language that um, just at, on the face of it may mean one thing to one person and may mean one thing to another, a different thing to a different person. We talked about how that um, uh, Jesus never just comes right out and says, I am God. And yet the Bible identifies him with the deity, with the being of God, um, with the power of God, with the um, oneness of God, without saying that the Son is the same person as the Father, because that would be a logical contradiction. So you understand that Jesus is God, but you also understand that the Son is not the Father. And so this is based on the equivocation on the term God. Does it mean the being known as God? Is it a statement of identity? Or does it mean the adjective, the quality of being God, like deity, right? Jesus is God. Does that mean Jesus is deity? Or does that mean Jesus is being known as God? Notice the equivocation or the ambiguity, uh, the, the, the slight confusion between the question, is Jesus God or Jesus is God? We know that John says the word was God, but is that a statement of predication? Meaning, is it an adjective? Or is it a noun? Jesus, you know, the word was God. The word was the being God? Is that a statement of identity? Or was the word deity? The word was God. We know the, the Greek article ha is missing, all right? Uh, or ton, or toss, or ton, or um, something like that. Tain, or te. I'd have to look at the, the, the original Greek right now. But you guys get the point I'm making. So let's jump back into where we left off. Um, and we'll finish just this part tonight. Uh, we won't make it a long study. Um, Dr. Anderson is talking about the equivocations in the Bible. He's talking about making sense of the biblical language when quite often, to our dismay, there's simply not enough information for us to be dogmatic sometimes. Often, we simply have to go on faith. And Paul is the one who told us that great is the mystery of godliness. He knows that to... Um, appreciate who God is, one has to approach God in faith. And indeed, if God simply said, I am God, I'm one being, but I'm three persons, well, then we wouldn't have to really trust so much. We would simply have it spelled out for us, and we could simply, even as an unbeliever, we could fall back to um, the, the, the language of the Bible or the creeds that we have crafted around the language of the Bible. But the Bible doesn't say it though, say things that way. Um, 
it reveals a little bit of who God is in one part of the Bible. It reveals a little bit more in another part, a little bit more in another part. And as you progressively read through the Bible, you gain a better understanding of who God is and what he is made of, if we can ask that question. So, Dr. Anderson is entertaining this discussion. Yes, it's highly philosophical. Bear with me for a minute, okay? He says, according to my proposal, this is Dr. Anderson speaking, paradoxical formulations of the doctrine of the Trinity must involve an unarticulated equivocation on one or more of the terms employed. Now, when we say unarticulated, we're talking about unexplained or let me see. Let's just highlight the word. Unarticulated, not mentioned or coherently expressed, right? Uh, unarticulated, meaning, look at these terms. God is divine, distinct, one, three, and so forth. These are the example terms that Dr. Anderson employs, and he re- he, uh, he's um, just um, giving us a reference. When we have discussions on the issues of Trinity, like we have like we're having now. And we have these discussions with, say, Oneness Pentecostals, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, uh, Unitarians, Iglesia Ni Cristo, Christadelphians, um, uh, uh, traditional rabbinic Jews, or um, Muslims. These are all groups that kind of fit into the monotheistic category of worshiping one God and affirming that God is just one person. He's numerically identical to himself only, to use um, uh, philosophical terminology, uh, logical terminology, analytic terminology. He's numerically identical to himself and no one else. Uh, Dr. Tuggy, our famous Unitarian that we've been um, interacting with in my Trinity studies, is fond of saying that um, the that God is numerically identical to um, the person that Jesus calls the Father. Uh, and so he just is the Father. God just is the Father and no one else. So God can't be Jesus. God can't be the Son in that particular model because of the um, to allow Jesus to be God or to the, allow the Son to be God is to equivocate, to confuse the term God or is or divine. And so this is what Dr. Anderson's trying to how he's trying to help us out. We Trinitarians can help our Unitarian brothers by avoiding confusing terminology or unarticulated equivocation. Don't just go around spouting off Jesus is God if you're not prepared to back up and entertain a discussion on how Jesus is God without explaining that the Son is not the Father. If you just say Jesus is God and you don't explain how the Son is not the Father, well then people might misunderstand you. In fact, Unitarians might say, uh, Christian Unitarians might say, and particularly say Oneness Pentecostals, they might say, oh yeah, we affirm Jesus is God. However, I'm an an Orthodox Biblical Trinitarian. Orthodox with a small o, meaning I believe it is entirely biblically accurate to describe Jesus the, the word made flesh, as very God, that is to say, a statement of predication, uh, deity. Jesus is deity because the word is deity. The word is God, John 1.1. 1, 1. However, I can say Jesus is God, but I cannot say that Jesus is the Father. I cannot say the Son is the Father. Why can't I say that? Because my theology doesn't allow so. So that's what I'm trying to say. If I slapped a bumper sticker on my car that said Jesus is God, and I drove down the street as a, as a merry uh, Trinitarian, 
thinking, well, that says it all. Jesus is God. You know, I believe it. That settles it. Well, I might have a fellow Unitarian driving behind me who is a oneness Pentecostal reading my bumper sticker saying, Amen, preach it, brother. Jesus is God. And if we were to stop at the light and roll down our windows and dialogue with one another, he might say, so you, you believe that Jesus is God, right? And I say, yes, I do. And he'd say, amen, so do I. Come, come visit my church, Oneness Pentecostal Church down the street. And let's, let's worship this one God whose name is Jesus. And I might go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You think that Jesus is God? Well, who's the Father? Well, the Father is Jesus. Jesus is the Father. He's, he's, he, the identity of the being is that Jesus is the only true God. There is no really Father or Holy Spirit, except for when he wants to trade out different masks and swap out his disguise. Well, suddenly I'm having a disconnect from my oneness Pentecostal brother sitting in the car next to me. All because I have a bumper sticker that says Jesus is God. That's the equivocation that we're talking about. So, God is divine, distinct, one, three, and so forth. Depending on the particular formulation and view, you're going to have about a, a, uh, some challenges that you need to overcome. Dr. Anderson continues, this being the case, right, the equivocation that is attached to the word God, it follows that a formally consistent expression of Trinitarian doctrine can actually be constructed simply by express, explicitly articulating distinctions between the relevant terms. So he's trying to let us know that um, we're going to have a difficult time as Trinitarians uh, connecting with our Unitarian brothers and reaching out to them if we're constantly just defaulting to the uh, standard, uh, confusing, ambiguous language that we've been raised with. He suggests that we should distinguish is version 1 and is version 2. Now, what is he trying to say? Jesus is God version 1. Is, in version 1, when we say Jesus is God, perhaps is connected to the oneness Pentecostal version of Jesus is God. Is, in their statement, means that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all Jesus. Jesus is God, and there is no other person. There are no other persons. The one God just is Jesus. That's what they mean by Jesus is God. That's version one. But we, classic or orthodox biblical Trinitarians, we might have version two for the word is. Jesus is God, version two. In our statement, is indicates is deity. Jesus is deity. He is the same being and makeup. He has the same essence as God the Father. He shares the same nature when we say that Jesus is God, but the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. Notice the distinguishing, uh, notice the distinction between version one is and version two is. That's what Dr. Anderson is trying to say to you as a Trinitarian Christian. Make sure you got your versions correct, right? Is version one and is version two. Or say divine version one and divine version two. Dr. Tuggy believes that Jesus is divine. But Dr. Tuggy is a Unitarian Christian. So that means he believes that the divinity that Yeshua possesses is a divinity that was conferred upon Jesus 
at God's request, at God's uh, begetting, when God uh, chose to bestow this upon Jesus uh, and and deify him or d- divinize him, uh, bestow, bestow this divinity, it wasn't something I'm trying to say that Jesus possessed all along from the word from the beginning. Classic biblical Trinitarians affirm that Jesus has always been divine. He is without beginning, without end, just like the Father. He has no beginning. He was not created. But Dr. Tuggy says, no, Jesus is a creature. He was created by God at some point in the past. And in this creation process, after coming to earth as a human being, and after dying and being resurrected and being exalted to the right hand of the Father, he was deified. He was glorified. Therefore, Jesus is divine, but his divinity is a version of divinity that's different and distinct from the divinity of classic Trinitarians. So that's what we mean by divine version one and divine version two. So when you're having a discussion as a Trinitarian with a Unitarian or a monotheistic uh, faith believer, like I said, either the one of those other uh, names that I mentioned, just be aware that equivocation is prone to happen unless you articulate what you're talking about. Uh, Dr. Anderson continues, alternatively, Problematic terms can be appropriately qualified so as to eliminate formal inconsistency, right? We have this um, logical inconsistency. So he says, for example, the term one, when we talk about God is one, the term one can be redefined to accommodate the enumerative oddities raised by the metaphysics of divine personhood while still applying in the usual way to non-divine persons and other mundane entities. So, uh, this is an easy one. When you read through your Bible that in Deuteronomy 6.4 that God is one, you're, you're, you're likely as a Trinitarian to think that, aha, this means that there's only one God. And you're right. That's what it refers to. God is one. God is unique. He's the only one that God is to serve. He's the only true God that is worthy of Israel's of attention and devotion and covenant faithfulness. God is one. There is only one God. Here is where the Lord our God, the Lord alone, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, is a is a really a, a, a strong way to interpret Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad from the Hebrew. However, the word Echad, when we translate one is used in other places in the Bible. And it doesn't refer to a singular, but it refers to a complex um, one or more um, aspect. In other words, it refers to something with maybe binary qualities, such as evening and morning were day one, Yom Echad, Genesis uh, chapter one, the creation account. It uses the word Echad to refer to the day, which is broken up into evening and morning. It's got that binary quality to it, right? Two parts, but one day. Likewise, when we move to Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve are joined together as husband and wife, and they they become what the Hebrew calls basar echad, one flesh, right? Or echad basar, I can't remember which, 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 which the order is, what the syntax is. But the point is, the two become one. Notice the binary quality. Adam is a man, Eve is a woman. There's two persons, but yet they're called one. They become one flesh, right? So the word echad doesn't have to mean exclusively a singular 
a uh, thing, whether it be the day which uh, which is spoken of or the, the the husband and wife unit. So when we say that God is one, it's not like Maimonides, uh, the the later medieval Jewish medieval sage that says, "I believe that God is Yahid." He uses a term that refers to God being a singular, a singularity, as in not able to be identified in in more than one part. But Dr. Anders is trying to relate to remind us that. Um, with this term one, uh, the Bible doesn't give us the benefit of being rigidly tied into the idea that there's just one fill in the blank, being a person, right? God is one being, he's one what, Dr. White would say, but nevertheless, the Bible reveals him to be three who's, not three what's, that's tritheism, that's, that's idolatry, that's three gods, but he is three who's, he's one what, He's a being known as God, but he's three who's, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons. So, in conclusion, uh, what Dr. Anderson uh, says in this uh, review is that whatever route is taken, and he's talking about a discussion between Unitarians and Trinitarians, whatever route is taken, however, the essential point is this. Given that we are dealing with a macro, what's a macro? Merely an apparent contradiction resulting from unarticulated equivocation. Meaning, we're dealing with terminology that isn't always explained or spelled out as to how or why this is what is what we're dealing with. If you don't believe me that the Bible contains uh, um, a healthy amount of ambiguities, um, ask yourself the question why Yeshua spoke in parables all the time. Why he spoke in terminology that could be understood by one person as one thing and another person as something else. Why did he challenge people using his verbiage so much? Sometimes he even resorted to, to purposeful ambiguity. Hey, the Bible says you people are gods. The book of Psalms calls you people gods. What's the big deal about me calling myself God? Right? He's playing with the term Elohim. He's playing off of the the equivocation of the term Elohim in the Bible because uh, it you know the the words are only meaningful within a context within whatever context is being created by that particular uh, usage at the time. That's what we mean by macro. Outside of context, words simply are ambiguous. If you don't know the context, then you don't know how what to make sense of the word. Last case in point. Genesis chapter 1 tells me that God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say anything about the word made flesh created heavens and the earth. It doesn't tell me anything about the eternal word as the creator. And yet we know in John and in Colossians and in, in other parts of Paul and in other parts of John and other parts of the New Testament that the eternal word is identified as the creator and that Jesus is this eternal word made flesh, John 1, 1 all over again. So thus, we as Trinitarians can affirm that Jesus as the eternal word is the creator. And yet, when you read Genesis 1, it doesn't say in the beginning the eternal word created the heavens and the earth. It says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So we've got some equivocation on this term Elohim, God. What does it mean, Elohim created the heavens and the earth? Well, it's only until God later reveals himself that we understand that Elohim in Genesis 1-1 does include the eternal word who later became Yeshua. The eternal word is Elohim. Even though Moses didn't write the eternal word, he didn't write the word logos or anything in the Greek or, or devar or anything, right? 
uh, in the Hebrew, he simply wrote Elohim. And yet, it's not until later on in the Bible that this ambiguity begins to unfold and explain itself. The context begins to be uh, to appear before our eyes, to become um, explained, to become articulated. God begins to explain himself later throughout the book. You've got to read all of the Bible if you understand, want to understand and affirm how God is put together. That's what we're talking about. So whatever route is taken, however, the essential point is this, Dr. Anderson concludes, given that we're dealing with Macru, apparent contradictions, they're not really contradictory. It's not contradictory to say that God created the heavens in Genesis and that the eternal word created the heavens in John. That's not a contradiction as long as we understand it's only an apparent contradiction if we leave the ambiguity or the articulation unexplained. The vocabulary used to express the doctrine can, in principle, be adapted so as to eliminate any formal contradiction. So we're talking about trying to allow the Bible to explain itself, trying to allow our creeds to be coherent. We don't have to, we as Trinitarian Christians, we don't have to look like people who don't know how to add. So often, and I'm closing with this, so often the charge against us from analytic Unitarian monotheistic uh, people or Christians or non-Christians, just monotheists, is that you Trinitarian Christians, you simply don't know how to add. One plus one equals what? They ask us, what does it equal? We say, uh, it equals one. No, that's wrong. That's bad math. One plus one plus one, last time I checked, equals three. So because we don't employ um, traditional logic and we don't seem to understand uh, how uh, the Bible is put together by a God who's infallible, well then, at the end of the day, we just look like idiots because we, we're, we're incoherent in the way we describe our, our um, Trinity models and our Trinity theories. Um, uh, it's incoherent. It's, fa- it's, it's logically fallible. Um, uh, it, it just doesn't make sense to the logical mind. And so that's why so many people are abandoning Trinity uh, because they, they, you know, they read the Bible and they say, one plus one plus one equals three. So if God is God, if the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, that's, that's too, too many gods for me as a monotheist. I think Unitarian Christianity is the one for me. And so they jump over to that, that type of Christianity. So we need to do better. We need to do a better job uh, in explaining this um, co- uh, complex God that we serve. So that'll do it for um, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Uh, next week, we'll continue working our way through the review. I'm not sure if we'll pick up right where you see on my screen now, but um, uh, we'll continue working our way through the view review before we finally jump into paper three, where we deal exclusively with the Holy Spirit. Let's turn to our liturgy tonight. We're not going to read any Greek because we dealt with that in the Roman study. Instead, last week, or two weeks ago, I read Exodus chapter 3, verses, let me drop down to it, verses um, uh, 13 through 15, and we had, we're we're focusing on uh, verse 14, where uh, God and Moses are having this dialogue about who God is. And I talked about, two weeks ago, I talked about how that we would look at the Hebrew. Well, I read the Hebrew last week, uh, verse 14. Let me read it for you one more time, just verse 14. And then we'll, I'll, uh, from our liturgy, I'm going to read a little bit of notes, some of the notes that I put together from a commentary that I wrote on this particular passage. And let's just enjoy this as our liturgy. In the, uh, well, let me read the English and the Hebrew. 
Uh, English of Exodus 3.14 said, God says to Moses, I am who I am, all capital letters. And he said to, uh, and, and he said, God continues, say this to the people of Israel, I am a sent me to you. And over on the right side of the page, we have the Hebrew. It says, Vayomer Elohim el Moshe, Eche asher Eche, Vayomer kotomar livne Yisrael, Eche shalachni alechem. And so we're asking this question, what does it mean for God to say, I am who I am? All right, take a look at this commentary that I wrote to Parashat Shemot, the Torah portion known as Shemot, or names, which is the first Torah portion of Exodus chapters 1 through verse, uh, ch- through chapter 6, verse 1, which is available on my website in PDF document, it's available in MP3 file, and it's available as um, uh, YouTube videos. Let me drop down into the commentary and just read uh, one uh, paragraph for you from this commentary and let you know something that's a bit fascinating. All right, um, so we have, um, here's what I say in my commentary. Looking at the first part of verse 14, we note that Hashem, which is God, he tells Moshe that his name shall be referred to as, you ready for it? Echyeh asher echyeh, or I am slash will be what I am slash will be. And the, the rendering there, I am slash will be what I am slash will be, is taken from David Stern's complete Jewish Bible, uh, where he renders it that way. Here's what I say in my... Um, uh, commentary. Sorry about that. There we go. This statement, this appears to be very strange to simply state that he is or that he will be until we understand that Hashem is about to deliver his people in a way that he has never before performed. Not only is he going to do this, but he will forever be remembered for this deliverance. And this is why the phrase, I am, in my opinion, is not really the best rendering of the, of the Hebrew phrase, Echia. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Following along with me so far? Let's continue. I say in my commentary, rather, the phrase, Echia, carries with it the idea that Hashem is about to perform a mighty work never before witnessed by His people, i.e., I will be. Now, Rashi which is Rabbi Shlomo Yitzaki. He's one of the most famous uh, medieval Jewish sages of all time. He carries a lot of weight and a lot of authority in rabbinic Judaism. Listen to what he has to say about this. He offers a thoughtful insight a thoughtful insight into this interchange by explaining that when Hashem invoked the double reference of Echyeh Asher Echyeh, he was informing Moshe that he would go together with all Israel and sustain them during this exile in Egypt. This is Rashi talking. He's explaining that God is going to go with Israel and in all future exiles, as Echyeh means, I will be there. So even Rashi agrees that it's possible to understand this phrase Echyeh as I am, but it's also impossible to understand it as a future tense, I will be. So it's either a statement of a present tense or a future tense. It works both ways, and context determines which one we choose. Another commentary, another commentator, Rashbam, Rabbi Shlomo uh, Ben Maimon, or otherwise known as Maimonides, um, not to be confused with uh, uh, Rambam, Rashbam, uh, I think I'm 
so yeah, Rashbam, Rambam. One is one is one one uh, uh, rabbi, and one's another one. So don't get the two confused. Like I'm confusing him right now. Uh, Rashbam, as cited by Bakor Shore, another rabbi, confirms the possible translation of quote he causes to be. So listen to um, this real quick, and then we'll close with this particular part of my commentary. I won't wax too long. This is a quote from the um, from Bakor Shore. This phrase has variously been translated as I am that I am, or I am who I am, or I will be what I will be. So it, it comes out across a few different ways. He goes on to say it clearly evokes YHVH, the specific proper name of Israel's God, right? Known in English as what we call the Tetragrammaton, that is four consonants. That's what Tetragrammaton refers to, YHVH. He goes on to say, the phrase itself also indicates that the earliest recorded understanding of the divine name was, you ready for this, a verb derived from the stem, from the stem, HVH, Hava, taken as an earlier form of HYH, to be, right? Either it expresses the quality of absolute being, right, I am, or the eternal, unchanging, dynamic presence, right? So when we say I am, we're talking about a being who is stating that there is none like me. I am ase, to use technical terminology. I'm self-sustaining, self-sufficient. Um, no one made me. I made myself, if you want to call, if you want to refer the language that way. Really, that's inaccurate as well. God didn't make himself. God is uncreated. But he exists eternally in and of himself without dependence upon anyone else. That's what I mean by ase. Um, and um, so when he can say I am, he is eternally I am. There's never been a time when when he wasn't present. I am eternally. That's that's one way to understand this. But it can also mean he causes to be. Listen to this. This is what the Jewish commentators, uh, people with, with bigger Hebrew degrees than I have, explain. YHVH is the third person masculine singular, whereas Ehyeh is the corresponding first person singular. I bet you most people didn't know that. Most Messianics who rattle off uh, Yahweh or Adonai or Jehovah or something to that effect when they're trying to approximate YHVH, they probably didn't know that YHVH is third person masculine singular. Whereas when God spoke to Moses and said, is actually first person singular. Why? Well, let's let the rabbi explain. This latter, that is, uh, third person, is used here because name-giving in the ancient world implied the wielding of power over the one named. That's why parents name the children. The children don't pick their own names. That's why slave owners named their slaves, sometimes renamed them, give them a new name or something like that. So the one being named is subservient to the one who's doing the naming, or is lesser than in that sense. Hence, the divine name can only proceed from God himself. So, in conclusion to our uh, liturgy part, what I'm simply trying to alert us to the idea is that when God spoke to Moses, Moshe in first person, he says, I am, or Eheh, Asheri, that which is Eheh. I am that which is Eheh. I am, or I will be. First person, I, Eheh, using the verb, I will be right? First person. 
But when Moses goes to convey the name of God to the children of Israel, Moses doesn't say, Ehyeh sent me to you. Moses uses third person masculine singular, Yahweh sent me to you. Understand the difference? Ehyeh, Yahweh. So Moses doesn't use first person because Moses is not the, the, the divine. He's not God. And if he were to say the, the name in first person, it possibly might be misunderstood as Moses trying to say that he's God or something like that. But it's just a matter of, um, of um, courtesy and a matter of the way uh, ancient uh, Hebrews uh, used language as to why we have this. So um, in the end, uh, YHVH is, is third person masculine singer. It doesn't mean that it's any less God's name. It's used 6,000 plus times in the Tanakh. It is God's name, but it's God's name when we are relating it back to other people. He is, or he will be. That's what YHVH refers to. And that'll do it for our liturgy. Alright, let's turn to the um, uh, let's turn to the video. We'll watch the five minute video, and then after the video is over, we'll simply dismiss in prayer, okay? You're listening to Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah Teacher Ariel and eBible. Let's take a look at our first question. Question. Did the Apostle Paul preach the end of the law? Well, the short answer is no. Paul not only did Torah, he also taught others to do the Torah. For instance, take a look at what James said to Paul in Acts 21-24, quote, Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law, end quote. Of course, James was addressing a rumor that was circulating among the Jews about Paul, and that it was that he was teaching all the Jews who were among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. Paul demonstrated by his lifestyle that the law did not come to an end in Messiah. He also admitted to this fact later on in his life, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Notice also that James doesn't add any supposed three-part breakdown to the law. He just says, law. This gives me the indication that these threefold designations are probably unsanctioned man-made distinctions. I'm going to give them a thumbs down. I think they're confusing. We can also observe Paul's view of the law in Romans 3.31. Do we overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We could use Romans 7.22, I delight in the law of God my inner being. Or Romans 7.25, I serve the law of God with my mind. What is the curse of the law? That's what came to an end in Messiah. For those in Messiah, the curse of the law has been brought to an end. Romans 8.1 However, this curse is still in effect for those outside of Messiah. What also came to an end in Messiah was the wall of separation that was erected by the Jewish communities in Israel who were wishing to keep a religious separation between Jews and Gentiles. In Messiah, both Jews and Gentiles who embrace Yeshua as Lord become one new mankind. 
as one new mankind, they both comprise the remnant of Israel, and they inherit the blessings and promises, which includes the Torah that was given to Israel. Besides, if Paul taught the end of the law, then as a disciple of Yeshua, he's going against his own words. Don't think that I came to do away with the law, Yeshua said in Matthew 5.17. Looking at this Greek word plerosai that Yeshua spoke about, he defines his uses of the word fulfill. He gives us the immediate context if we look at this particular verse. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same would be called least in the kingdom, but who teaches and does them will be called great in the kingdom. So based on Yeshua's words, if Paul wanted to be great instead of least, then he needed to not only do the commandments of the law, but teach others to do them as well. Which brings us full circle. By his life, Paul not only did Torah, he also taught others to do the Torah. Check out my podcast on iTunes, search term Ariel Hanavi. And if you're watching this video on YouTube, why don't you go ahead and subscribe to my YouTube channel. I try to upload new content every week. And thank you for watching the short little video. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. I thank you for the study. I thank you for the students. I thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity and the means to study your words, even though we're separated by many, many miles, thousands of miles for many of us. Um, we meet together because your spirit draws us together. And we are connected because of what you have done for us, because of the great sacrifice that your son uh, performed for us, because of his uh, resurrection and his intercession, because he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. He sits at the right hand of, of the Father forevermore, never to die again. He has become victorious over the power of sin and over the power of death. And we now live because of his sacrifice. Thank you, Lord that you have brought us into this great family of yours and that you are raising us up and that you're strengthening us and that you're protecting us. You're giving us your words of life and you're giving us your Holy Spirit so that we can walk these words out. Be with us during these uh, very terrible uh, and, and, and uh, scary times. Uh, no matter where you're at in the world, it's just so much confusion, fear, trepidation. Um, but we don't fear. We have no reason to fear because we serve the God who is greater than fear. And we'll continue to trust in him uh, as our provider, as our healer, as the one who will raise us up. Help us to be a witness, Lord. Help us to um, be bold in our testimony, sharing the, the good news with uh, our friends, our family worker, our family, our co-workers. Or even with someone we meet, might meet on the street, if that's the case, Lord, uh, give us divine appointments. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory. Bashem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. 
to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 